This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used and trusted for well over a decade now, and they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 511 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month, they're going to sell a different patch, and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership, and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 363 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Scott Austin. Now, Scott is one of the founders of the Olivet Agrihood community in North Carolina. So if you listen to this podcast for any amount of time, you'll know that the element of community is one that I feel we are missing in many neighborhoods around the country. And so what they have done is built a community around a farm. So there is a constant food source. There is a sense of community. It's embedded in nature. So a really unique and progressive way to look at housing. So before we get to the interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does make this podcast more visible for people looking for a project like this. And then this is a free library for you, the audience, individually, organizationally, however you want to use it. So all I ask in return is that you share these amazing men and women's stories so I can make sure they get to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Scott Austin. Enjoy.
Scott, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And where on planet Earth are we finding you today? We are six miles from downtown Asheville in North Carolina. We're situated on a little over a mile and a half of frontage on the French Broad River um, in the Western Carolina Mountains in North Carolina. Beautiful. Well, we're going to definitely explore the very place that you're sitting right now in, in some depth, but I like to always start chronologically. So you personally, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. I was the youngest of three boys um, from Greensboro, North Carolina, not too far away from here. Um, grew up playing sports, grew up around the house and grew up with my father had a loud whistle and um, I think like a lot of people our age, uh, we went out till it got dark and we came back when it was either my dad's whistle or Brian Lewis's father had a bell that they rang and that kind of called everybody in the, in the neighborhood from, you know, five, six, seven block radius kind of sent them home. And, um, you came back bruised and dirty and, you know, the whole idea was wash up for supper and we've lost that. So um, my two older brothers are still, I am in business with both of them today. We own Austin development properties and have worked on projects throughout the Southeast in particular, um, student housing for universities and tertiary markets. And, um, I went out to Wyoming for a while after college, um, thinking that that was going to be where I ended up. But it turns out that you can't really go too far away from family. So it just brought me back home and needed to be back around my, my, my mother and my father passed away when I was uh, back in 88, when I was 15. So my brothers and I um, still have our home office and my father's the building my father built in Greensboro. And um, this was just uh, Asheville. We were in Charlotte for a while and Asheville kept on calling to us. The idea was, we weren't spending enough time outside. Um, I have, I have a uh, four-year-old daughter, a ten-year-old son, and a twelve-year-old son. And we just—they were both the, the two youngest were you know, four and two when we moved, and just decided we, we needed to be we needed to be right next to the to nature. We needed to be able to step out of the door and go biking or hiking or camping or get in the river and. What did we want them growing up with? Was it, you know, we gave up some of the things, sports programs that were a little larger in Charlotte and some of those things that I grew up with. I was a soccer player growing up and just made the decision what was the most important to us. And it was just letting the kids grow up a little bit more wild than they were currently doing in Charlotte. And that brought us to Asheville coming up on 10 years now. And, um, my brothers are still in Greensboro. Our home offices are there and we live, we live here and love it. We love it. I just think it's important. And um, we're hoping that the world sees the importance of being close to nature and what that means and what it does for our health. And all of that was born out of that. Beautiful. Well, I grew up on a farm myself, so I can completely relate. We had a bell, a dinner bell, and that was it. You, you come back. I mean, in England, we were normally drenched as well because it rained every single day. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you just clean up and, and that's it. And you know, the, your immune system is probably pretty strong because you were rolling around in God knows what. Now, what about <laughs> what about the food element? Obviously, food is a big part of what you guys do now. What did the food look like when you grew up, when you were in the school ages? Were you able to get it from farms and kind of clean sources? 
you know, growing up, I wasn't really around farming that often other than, you know, we, a guy by the name of the Hobbs family had a large farm kind of away from us and we would spend time out there. Um, but the majority of our food came from grocery stores when I was growing up. Um, and it was kind of a meat and potatoes family. My father liked to grill out. Um, as we got older, um, we started seeing the benefits of, of cooking better and eating better. I, mean, I don't think we, the world really started to take notice until the late 90s, early 2000s about what we were putting in our body and how processed it had become. Um, but I'd say we ate relatively healthy growing up, but certainly not farm healthy, certainly not farm to table type of living. Um, and as you know, when my wife and I got married, it became more and more important to us what we put in our bodies and the people that we put around us. Uh, it was way more about quality than it was about quantity. And that's from our associates and friends and rather have a much smaller group of people that I really care, care, care for and have the same likes and ideals um, and have a deeper connection than spread thin and not really having that same connection with them. And part of our move out of Charlotte was for that as much as anything was making sure that our our kids saw what was important to us as we grew up and living by example more than anything. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's the thing. They get to see it. You can tell them whatever you want to tell them, but they, they have to watch you walk the walk. Yeah, they just see what you're doing daily. And you, you, got, you don't have to teach that much when you're living it. Now, um, they'll still stumble and make mistakes. But um, I grew up going to summer camps. I think that especially for folks that – aren't out in nature constantly or you know, t- traditional city folks that live on either the suburbs that, you know, whether it's sports camps or summer camps or nature camps or just the ability to getting together Boy Scouts programs or task program, which is something here local that's a big, kind of a service corps um, group of folks. It's just we saw the need for that. Um, for our family's well-being and for them to grow up with that camaraderie um, coming home dirty, coming home with your elbows scratched and your hands with you know rocks and debris. And that's what you're supposed to look like as a kid and have those badges of honor on your knees and your elbows. So um, I just that that sound of the screen door slamming and playing in the creek and the dinner bell is what tugs at everybody's heartstrings. So when we decided we actually moved to Asheville with the intent of starting a summer camp or actually getting into, there's quite a few summer camps in the Asheville area and really wanting to define our kids' lives at an early age. I was a counselor all the way through high school and college and after college and saw the importance of what having that male figure in your life or female figure um, just at the summer camp made for us and giving kids access to it. So we moved out here and looked into that at first and really worked with a friend of mine named Yates Farr, who owns Falling Creek Camp, and saw how he and his wife, um, Marisa, had dealt with starting and opening up their camp and what the roles and responsibilities were going to be for them. And my background was in, in real estate development, and we quickly found that what we really were passionate about wasn't was as much the camp 
from a youth standpoint as it was about maybe intergenerational living as well, which is bringing kids and adults and grandparents together in one location and giving them some, some of the same things that they could do at summer camp in an area um, right near downtown Asheville for us. And fortunately, we've got a beautiful stretch of the French Broad River and coming up five acres of, of farmland now that we're really pushing and all of that farms has grown out of that. And for that to be the central water cooler for the community, now we can program things for people to do around the farm and around the community and kind of take that summer camp attitude and mentality for how you want to live your life and build it and give people things to do. And you can, you can build a really beautiful community, but if you don't give people reasons and things to do where they're out in the community doing service work and side by side and dirty in the dirt or cutting sunflowers for the community or providing vegetables for those folks in need or pivoting when something like the Corona came, you know, coronavirus came up. How do we get fresh vegetables to the folks that were already involved with us and to the community as a whole? And um, I may be rambling a little bit, but that's where we are. No, not at all. And it's funny with the the summer camp thing. I worked in a summer camp in upstate New York, Long Lake camp for six years, six summers. And so I can completely see that community element because a lot of these kids were actually wealthy. They were from some pretty affluent families in the New York area. But consequently, a lot of them, their parents were business people or lawyers, and they didn't actually see their kids that much. So these kids, in a way, a lot of them were kind of pseudo neglected. They went to boarding school all year and then they went to summer camp all summer. And I watched the healing effect of being around other kids, of being mentored by these counselors. And it was a, a kind of introspective look at what any community can look like if we invest in it. Yeah, without a doubt. And I, if you look, we, we build in Hamlet style here, meaning we're trying to do pocket communities within our larger community of houses, maybe you know, 30 30 houses or less within each little hamlet. And that is done really based on European development where you would have, you know, a trail that led into a village and you, know, you had folks that lived there and they had good soils for this, that, and the other, and they traded and bartered and they knew folks that were there. And then you went, you know, a mile down the road and there was another little village and a mile down the road along the cliffside. And there was just that sense of, ease and peace and reliability for the folks that were around you um, and also that sense of hopping over to the next town over to do something different or to see something different or and if you can take that idea and turn that into a more or less this sort of new urban development and have little hamlets within a larger development and each one has their own identity and their own character and their own Goods and bads. I mean, everything comes with a cost. Um, but allowing the folks that live in this community to share similar to what the elders shared in those villages, um, whether it be from an educational standpoint or whether it be from uh, their talents, whether they're cooks or whether they are musicians or storytellers, whether they're seamstress or somebody that you know has a professional background 
not only letting the land do the talking for it, but letting the folks share their life experiences within the community and offering them places to do that through, you know, in our park area or our pavilions or along our trail systems with overlooks and just giving people the, that it takes a village. We talked about it earlier. It does. And you just better make sure you got the right people in the village and um, that are, that are fostering that intergenerational living. Absolutely. Well, it reminds me of, um, I think it's Dunbar's number where they round it out to about 150 people is supposed to be the kind of rough number of a, a functioning tribal group when they look at all these you know, more ancient tribes. And, and you look at what we do in our cities now, and we have so many people crammed in that they are surrounded, obviously, by millions of people yet can feel so disconnected and so lonely. So I see the communities like where I live right now is kind of a different version of what you guys definitely not as holistic but you know we're around this one main recreational area and there's four little subdivisions and you know the the, the community is incredible and the kids play together and the you know everyone's running around the lake and it's just it's it's absolutely amazing and i see how as you said having that hamlet style these smaller communities that make up a larger community is key and and the lessons are in history just look around the world at other tribes they're not living hundreds of thousands on top of each other yeah you're right i mean history teaches us that it's an it's isolation amongst the masses is what we've got going on right now and you can live in a city of 15 million in new york city but feel completely alone and video games and telecommunication and we've been given tools to further isolate ourselves and i'm not a anti-technology fella at all um but i think that we can use it to our advantage to allow us to to be amongst nature even when we need to be using technology or have the ability to turn off and get right out into nature out of our back door and really refresh. And if you look at societies over history, you know, the, the Japanese have the forest bathing and this isn't anything new. And, um, just what it means to be in nature and the, the benefits of being in and near or around water. Um, what that does to your blood pressure, what that does to your stress level, your cortisol levels. Um, it's not rocket science, but it is science, you know, and if we can take baby steps towards that, trying to give people different ways to gather and socialize and ways to vent and work through their problems in a smaller cluster like this, then Hopefully that spreads to the larger population as a whole. Absolutely. Well, I guess we need to actually describe what we're talking about. So tell me about your journey from the uh, the genesis of Olivet and then you know how you found yourself to where you are now. Who October of 2014. So is when we purchased our first parcel out here for the combination of the land. But I'll step back a little bit. Um, like I said, we are the idea was coming here to to be in the in the camping business, to be able to offer the mentoring and the mental 
awareness to those kids at such a crucial age. And when we realized that there was more to be done than just that, and that we felt like a community could be built around that premise, at least with that as one of our keystones, um, we started looking for land. And the idea, there were other places popping up across the United States that are agricultural based, um, that have got the moniker agrihoods, which are Trading golf courses and tennis courts and all these things is kind of the buzzword for farm and farm to table living. And we quickly realized that while that is important and it's difficult, um, farming is not an easy practice and it is challenging and it is cyclical and it is difficult to do and takes years to get right. So when we found Olivette, knowing that that was going to be the critical piece to what we were trying to accomplish was to build a community with walking trails between hamlets and smaller areas where people can share community areas, where we're not afraid to build densely in small areas so we can leave lots of green spaces open around, around us. When we made that decision, well, it was just a matter of finding the right spot. Um, and we were very fortunate um, to find a little over – we were able to parcel together a little over 350 acres on the French Broad River, one of the oldest rivers in the world, and find an area that is in a great climate, that has wonderful seasons. Um, there are better places in the world to farm, but there are not better places in the world to live, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, topography is, is a challenge. You know, your, your climate certainly changes for farming. So we decided to make the farm the first thing we did before we even started with, with putting the community together and trying to get people to live here. So we started all of that farm and we are, you need to make sure that farm is a, a good business entity that's self self-sustaining if you're going to build stuff around it to make sure that it works. So we got to the business of farming and got all got communications and, and, and working with local restaurants and CSA, which is community supported agriculture, which is like a monthly subscription for part of the year that gives you boxes of vegetable weekly. And you come by and you pick it up and you can talk to the farmer and get the local recipes um, as well as being in the farmers markets and surrounding areas here in in Asheville and surrounding area. So once we had that going and we were moving, we um, sat down with really everybody that might have a vested interest in what we were doing. And that's from the town of Woodfin and the mayor and the board of aldermen to the community around us as a whole, um, our neighbors, local artists, um, People that have done similar things um, and have failed and have succeeded and tried to give everybody somewhat a crayon in this process. So we could so we held a charrette, which is just a real fancy word for brainstorming session. Um, and we did it for two days and looked at what we were trying to accomplish, what the community outside of all of its walls we're looking for and what they may be receptive to and what we could offer. And we built our community that way and did our master plan 
and came up with our Hamlet style development with trails on the Blue Mine, which is on the French Broad River, and then the Green Mine, which is kind of runs closer to the uh, to Lee Creek and through more forested areas of the property, and giving people ways to connect from their back door and keeping them off the roads and offering them areas for biking and hiking and trails and walking and fishing and playing in salamander waters and just doing what kids do. And that's what we built around. And we were opening it up in small sections at a time. We're not going out and just blowing through this whole place just with the intent to sell the real estate because it needs to happen at a slower pace to allow that community to develop around it. And we've been real fortunate and we've got a lot of good publicity from NBC when uh, Lester Holt started kind of our kickstart. And then we've been awarded community of the year for national home builders association. And it's just been a grassroots campaign um, about what we call, you know, screen door living, which is just, Knowing your neighbors, a cup of sugar neighborhood where people look out for one another and they help raise the kids and they know who's around and who shouldn't be around and how to get dirty and where to get dirty and when to come home for dinner. And um, it just and giving people the opportunity. You know, we have somebody on staff that's her title is cruise director. And that's really just a fun title that means giving people things to do. And she organizes events, whether it's book club or gardening club or whether it's Bunko um, or, or our community service through all of that service core or sunflower picking or gardening or you name it. And trying to also allow the folks within Olivet that have talents to start sharing their talents, giving them areas and platforms and places to go do what they do best, whether it's technology or music or education and that's her job is to put these people out there and let them share what they do well within the community. So it's it's this camp atmosphere that's programmed um, when you want it. But you don't have to do anything you don't want to do, but giving people reasons to be out with one another. And that coupled with the farm and this holistic style of living and sharing seems to be working. People want it. Um, it's not something that you have to go out and sell. It's just the story you explain. And inevitably, you'll have somebody that talks about their grandfather or going out to spend time with their friends a couple of weeks out of the year or getting out of the city. Or it's just it always tugs at the heartstrings. And it's just it's just I feel like we've all gotten so disassociated with one another and so spread that just the idea of this people want it and people are are yearning for a connection with one another and with and with the earth and that's that's us in a nutshell yeah well you've also created an environment that covers so many of the topics that I discuss a lot with people in here when it comes to positive healing or coping mechanisms so you've got the nature element you've got the clean food you've got the exercise you've got the sense of community so what are you what have you observed with the overall happiness and mental health of the community that you've built well you'd like to say that it's bright shining faces all the time um 
and we're seeing we're seeing people pulling their kids on wagons and we're seeing people interact with one another and knowing how to cook kohlrabi that they didn't know what kohlrabi was last week and it's providing them the opportunity for a better style and better quality of life and we are in our infancy you know we we started in october 2014 with raw dirt and we went went to work from there to develop a large community and we are seeing the benefits daily and whether that's wholesale health from our community or just seeing people out on their bikes or eating fresh vegetables down by the pavilion or getting together for just cookouts with one another and grilling vegetables instead of beef on the grill Um, and spending more time biking and walking and less time in their car. But you know, the sample size is still relatively small. You know, we, we really only got permanent residents for the last couple of years, but we're seeing it and it's going to continue to grow and snowball as we continue to bring in more folks and more things to do within the community. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned about the, the, the smaller size homes to increase the availability of the surrounding nature. And that's something that where I am now, I mean, we've got so much space in, in the Ocala area that there is space for these giant homes, but the reality is, and you've got the small yards and, and basically just grass, but we kind of, I think, have been dragged into this this kind of misconception that you need thousands and thousands of square feet for a family of four, you know? So tell me about the houses themselves, the size, and obviously also the, the environmental elements to the design as well. Well, that's the million dollar question is what's the right size? And had you asked that same question six months ago, um, it had a different number to it. And I, and I say that because you look at the National Home Builders Association and local realtor boards and builders, they, they all put together information and they'll send it out about what's trending. And that's whether that's the size of your bathrooms to the amenities in your kitchen to home office space to garage versus carport. Um, now, our, our first focus is on quality and um, efficiency of these homes. And we're not a cookie cutter neighborhood where you have to be you know, a taupe or a green colored house with an architectural brown roof. It feels very disingenuous to tell somebody, hey, come build the home of your dreams so long as it looks like this. That's really just not how we operate. But we do have a a minimum, you know, you can build as small as 1,100 square feet. And in a community of our size in this area, for that to be the minimum minimum square footage, that's awfully small. Um, And with variances, we've got opportunities to get smaller even than that. But – our homes are anywhere between 2,100 square feet and 4,000 square feet to some of the larger ones that are tucked up top. Um, and each one of them are required to have a HERS rating, which is a home energy rating score of 55 or lower, which really tests how well that house is built, uh, how well it's put together and how little it is letting it's bleeding, if you will. Um, quality materials and building envelope and types and density of your insulation and spray foam versus bat and two by six versus a two by four 
and making sure that all of your penetrations have the right caulking to make sure that they're not letting all the HVAC escape, HVAC escape um, and that they're efficient and well-run and they don't cost more than they should to operate and um, that the building materials we're using are as safe as possible and that we're using everything within our development we've chosen for a, to do geothermal heating and cooling which uses the ground to dissipate um, heat. Um, so instead of having, in a, for instance, in the summer months when it's 90 degrees outside, typical air handles, handlers will pull in 90 degree heat. And let's say you want to go to 72. It's having to move it a, a lot of degrees. And that uses energy. And by having geothermal, which is more or less a radiator built down into the earth, allows that heat to go through that first. And instead of running 90 degree air over your coils and trying to get him to 72, you're using the ambient temperature of the earth and you're really going from, you know, in that 68 degree range up to 72, that energy you're having to use to go from 68 to 72 is significantly less than if you had to go from 90 to 72. And the same thing happens in the winter. You know, if you're 38 degrees outside and you're trying to keep your house 70 degrees in the wintertime, that's a big delta. It's a large jump that you're having to use power to get to. So geothermal allows us to start from a much more level playing field in terms of where you're starting that, that temperature. And it allows for a much more efficient home and opportunities to put solar. We've got such great sun out here and several great people here in town that are pushing the solar envelope, if you will. And if you're coupling geothermal and solar, you know, some of our folks, their power bill is really 14 to $16 a month. And that's only paying what they have to, to be connected to the grid. So quality and craftsmanship and sustainability and efficiency, um, that's what's driving our homes out here. And what's the right size? After COVID and what people are doing now, you know, you may see folks that are trading bedrooms for home offices and garages converted to areas where they can have a home gym. So we haven't landed, I don't think, yet on what that post-COVID square footage is going to look like for a house. And I think that's what people are still trying to get their arms around. Um, what do I want to give up? Um, what do I want to add to if I'm building a new house? Um I certainly think that people are going away from the expensive tiles and packages that just don't add much to quality of life and rather spend that money on outdoor living areas where they can get away and a place where they can spend time with their family inside and outside. And it doubles as a bedroom with a Murphy bed that can also be an office. I think that's what we're going to see more than anything is multi-use areas where you know, especially, you know, let's say you have a, a bedroom that it's a spare bedroom. How often do you use your spare bedroom at your house? Yeah, I, my my spare bedroom is my office that has a pull-out couch bed. So there you go. <laughs> exactly. And I think that, that that needs to be the – we need to be looking at multiple uses for everything that we have in our life, whether that's our vehicles, whether that's where we live, whether that's our – parks and things that we're doing from a public standpoint, are there multiple ways to use that when it's not being used for the one thing that it was designed for? 
And if we can do that with our own homes and our own land um, and use things more wisely and think about what we're doing before we just go out there and throw it against the wall. And we've been real specific about our growth strategy that we have a, we have an overall master plan, but things may change during the course of our development. And as the need for less or more space or smaller houses or more outdoor spaces or more, maybe it's looking for, an area we had set aside for single family residential that maybe wants to be townhomes because we're getting a lot of folks that are really looking for zero maintenance and they want to be closer to folks and the age and place options and allowing the children to be closer to the more elderly in the community so they can both feed off of one another. And you can, you can look at several European uh, models that show maybe a, we don't have this here yet and nor can I guarantee we will, but you look at Scandinavian communities where they have assisted living built right around starter homes. And the idea is that this multi-generational folks can benefit. The elderly can benefit from the, the youth and the youth can benefit from the, the being taught and schooled, if you will, and life lessons from the folks that have been there, done that. And, just trying to figure out the right mix and how that works. And I say that we've got a master plan, but that master plan could change in six months, but in holistically it's growing hopefully in the smartest way possible and the best path forward where we get the most out of what we're doing and the most out of one another and the most out of the land and the water that we've been provided that is limited, scarce. And if we're not careful, non-renewable and the more we can teach our children's the effect that we're having on this planet by what we put into the ground and what we're taking out of it um, that we've got to give back just as much as we're taking out of it or they're going to be left with a lot less than we were provided when we were growing up absolutely well you hit on covid and i think that's a that's a very good time to illustrate some of the other things that you have there one of the areas I think that was just, you know, a glaring deficiency in, in many of us, I'm not going to pretend that I'm living on a, on, you know, a self-sustaining life, um, was our dependence on stores and our dependence on utilities and all these other areas. So talk, tell me about the self-sustaining element when it comes to the food, when it comes to the water source that, you know, would allow you to thrive whatever was going on in the world. That's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I know COVID shown a light on our deficiencies and also gives us the opportunity to really show the areas where we shine well together as well. Um, and not just our dependency on stores, but our dependency on transportation and the fear of going out um, and not knowing what's next. Um, and you can't, you can't build that away. And I don't think we're ever going to get rid of it, nor do I think that this is the last type of a pandemic we're going to see uh, in our lifetime. Um, I'm not saying that it's all doom and gloom, but I think if 
we need to do what we can to be prepared as we move forward. And giving people the tools not only to go to the farm and know what to buy and how to buy and what things can be stored longer and what things could be in the root cellar and how to dry and can goods. Um, but showing folks the, the, how quickly that supply chain shut down and how little we each know about cooking and how important it is to have that food as a, as a, as a source of, health and nourishment. And I think I might've gotten off base, but your question was trying to teach our children that there is a different way to get that same food that you're so used to going in and picking up at the grocery store. And if you can teach a child how to grow ahead of spinach, that same guy that you, you give them spinach from the store and dice it and wilt it or however you choose to do it, and they turn their nose up at it. If you let them grow that same head of spinach and dig it up and wash it off and cut it, they will be the first one to eat that food and they will be so proud of it. And their taste buds will tell them how wonderful it is. And by knowing where your food comes from and being a part of that process, we're changing the habits. Um, changing our habits, but also starting our children off with better habits than we have right now. And I think that's as important as anything is the educational component. And whether that's latchkey kids that have access to vegetables and teaching them that microwavable, you you can microwave vegetables if that's what you have to do. There's still better ways than processed food. Um, But education around food and how to cook it and what it does has never been at a, a bigger premium than it is now. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and and with you having the farm there, I'm assuming that during all this, your residents still had access to fresh, clean vegetables, regardless of what was going on in the stores. They have. Um, we actually, the first thing we did, we, we built a, a drive-through area, a covered area by our farm. And went to work and where were we were, we were doing restaurant sales that dried up almost overnight. Um, we took all the, everything we had in the field and doubled down our efforts to providing a drive through area where people could buy online. Um, and you don't have to be part of a subscription service or the CSA, but it's, this is that perfect opportunity for using technology, um, as a benefit um, for nature in this particular case, but you go through and just like you check out from a store, you check out which vegetables you want, what's available. And on Wednesdays you drive through and the vegetable has been harvested on Tuesday, clean, washed, um, and are in a bag sitting there for you to drive through, say hello and pick up contactless vegetables, um, every Wednesday. And for us, that is, a testament to Joe, who is our farmer, and Daniel, the assistant farmer, pivoting, you know, saying, all right, this is what we have now. This is the new, this is where we are now. How do we make this work? And clean, you know, access to fresh vegetables on a weekly basis for people within and outside the community has been 
it's everything we wanted. And uh, we're very fortunate that that's the case. Beautiful. Now, what about the water? You, you mentioned about the self-sustaining nature of the water source too. Well, our farm is our farm is is on well, um, the, and then our our larger community is actually on the Asheville City water. And um, there's a there's a trade off to we have we have wells on the property as well that can make sure we always have water through our aquifer for our farm and always have it for our vegetables. Um, the geothermal that allows them to be a, a closed loop system and we're on one of the largest stretches of the French Broad River privately held in Buncombe County. And we're bordered on three sides by Lee Creek and Newfound on the other. And so our the spotlight is on us to make sure that we are protecting the rivers and protecting our water sources and making sure that the development and clearing that we do is done in a responsible way that – doesn't pollute our water stream, doesn't pollute the downstream water, and doesn't put additional or unneeded sediment into the water. Um, so from an educational standpoint, as well as how we develop um, that access to and education on clean water, um, that is critical. You know, water is going to be gold, you know, as we grow up and, um, the more that we can protect it and learn about it and teach our children that what is normal and what is not appropriate, the more it becomes second nature to them and it becomes less of a, of a hurdle or an impediment to development, but just a natural byproduct is spending that extra dollar to make sure that you're protecting the water that's leaving your site or coming onto your site and it's filtering it properly, that you're not making problems for people downstream. Um, and exasperating the problem even further. Yeah. Well, I know one of the big pollutants of, of any area is the pesticides, insecticides, etc. So what are some of the kind of philosophies you have on the farm to, to, to get to an organic level farm versus the industrial farming that we see so much of? Well, that's, we are, we use organic practices throughout the entire development. Um, and we are a, a chemical and pesticide free development. Um, and it is the number one pollutant to our water stream. And we are looking for drought tolerant options for homes, for people not planting a bunch of grasses that require watering and maintenance. Um, and our farm in particular has practices, complete organic principles and practices. And, not running all of this water off of the farm, especially in an area that's mountainous. You know, you've got the grade that's everything, everything runs back to the rivers. That's just how it goes. And by doing proper crop rotation, by using um, organic practices, um, by making sure that you're protecting the farm runoff, um, and that you're whatever that you're not running anything running pollutants into the river, it's more difficult. Um, weeds are a problem. It's harder to grow organically. Um, it is much easier, and there's a reason that these commercial farms use these practices because it is it is a much easier way to farm. Um, but it is so detrimental to 
our future and to what we've been given, that all of that acts as a somewhat of a, of a roadmap to how we can move forward and we'll make mistakes and we'll have, we'll trip and we'll fall and we will try to be as open source of a development as possible. When folks come to us and say, Hey, how did you do this? What did you do wrong? What did you do right? Um, to try and be as, as giving as humanly possible to make sure that these are, this is the way people do things moving forward. And if it isn't successful, you know, this is all well and good. And, but if it doesn't, if it isn't profitable enough where we can continue to stay in business, then we've missed the mark. And we need to prove to people that are looking to do things the old way or to do things the right way, that the right way can be just as profitable and offer the same advantages moving forward as the old way. That's, 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 that's the ticket. Uh, and that's, that's where it only works if it works and you can show people that it's working. And we've been very fortunate that it's working very well for us and people are, people be, are gravitating towards it. Beautiful. Yeah. It seems like the, um, the, the false column, excuse me, the false economy element is the one that's really kind of gripped our society at the moment. Well, you know, oh, right now this is cheaper. This, this, you know, lightweight construction house that we just put up in, in a month, is cheaper than an Olivet house. Well, yeah, but you haven't got the environmental element. You're not saving on your utility year after year after year. The, clean, the, the food, like you said, that you have ingrained in your farm may be a little more expensive than what you can buy covered in chemicals down the store. It may not, but the reality is of the two, which is going to keep your kids healthy, which is going to prevent them getting some horrendous disease like cancer. So, you know, when you factor all those in, it's not just a dollar for, it's not an apple for apple comparison. You've got to rethink the way you look at your investment in your home and the way your community functions. Without question, you know, you, you have to treat your body like any other asset that you own. And as a little preventative maintenance now that's more expensive, pays off dividends in the long run. Um, if you had a roof leak in your house, you wouldn't let it continue to leak. You'd go out there and you'd fix it. And as a society, um, from a localization of food source, we've got a lot of roof leaks in, in how in how our economy works and trying to get people to buy off on, like you said, spending a little bit more in the front end to save a whole lot in the long run. Um, quality of life, both financial as well as just spirituality and just the, the cleanliness of it and how it works. Um, it's just a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Well, I've got a kind of tangent question for you. Um, I've been in Asheville myself. It's beautiful. Um, and I know there's a, a large Cherokee community there. Was there any influence or interaction with the Native American community in the inception of this? No, you know, not in this particular location. Um, there was not. Um, farther towards, uh, a little bit further out west, it becomes more and more, um, but in this particular area, no, there really wasn't. Right. Because I had uh, Sebastian Junger on the, the show. He wrote Tribe and some other incredible books. But he talks about, you know, my my ancestors, the, the European settlers coming over here 
and actually you know, there's many many cases of of them being captured by native american tribes and then not wanting to come back because they found that sense of community and you know that holistic living so it's kind of interesting with what you're doing now kind of almost modeling on probably what was here hundreds of years before that's the that's the most important thing is that we're not re- we're not inventing anything we're not smarter than anybody this is this has been around for a long time and what we are trying to get back to our our primal nature which is toes in the dirt you know knowing the seasons smelling the rain knowing what's coming next um knowing giving ourselves the ability to listen to our body and shut down a little bit in the winter it's such a go 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 society and we've become so focused on what's next um, I need to do this so I can get to this I need to finish this so I can meet this deadline I need to have this done so I can have this and um, there was a, a forced slowdown to folks of previous generations simply by the dark or by the temperatures and We've been able to find ways around that from a profitability standpoint and from a productivity standpoint, but at what cost? And trying to take a deep breath in the winter and put off some of those things that we can get to next season and allowing us to listen to the rhythms of nature. Um, When you look at those nomadic um, communities, Um, whether it be moving when the crops were done and finding a new place to live or just circling the wagons for the winter because you weren't going to grow anything then. And we've lost that connection with our planet. And we don't have to go crazy with it, but you do have to turn the volume up a little bit and listen to what it's telling you and when it's time to reap and when it's time to sow and when it's time to rest and when it's time to gather. And it's just a different, it's different every day. Yeah, no, I, I agree hundred percent. I mean, look at the, the fruits and vegetables that we ship literally thousands of miles just because we want to have it out of season, you know, and you look again at the environmental impacts and obviously the, the uh, impact of the industrial farming that normally got those in the first place just so you can have strawberries in in the fall, you know, or you know, whatever whatever <laughs> our season area it is, um, versus just like you said, finding joy in whichever seasonal fruit there are, or as you mentioned earlier, understanding to freeze and can. And we have some, like you said, some great technology these days. We can take beautiful fresh fruit and vegetables and get them to last longer using the machines that we've invented. But if we're you know shipping avocados thousands of miles when in florida here we can literally stick a you know a tree in the in the dirt and grow our own then it's insanity to think about the the journey that that food took just for you to have the convenience of driving up to a store and filling it in a cart full of plastic covered food without question and not to mention the taste and the nutritional value. I mean, some of the stuff you're getting is so leached of nutritional value by the time it's been frozen and thawed and brought up and 
picked early so it could mature on the way over. And it's just wrong. Um, and there's a, there's a, there's the disconnect on how we're feeding our body and how we're interacting with the planet. And there's just better ways to do things. Absolutely. Well, one more element. And, you know, again, you said this is a very new, um, environment, but I'm curious from the, the health and also the, the safety element. When you've got this sense of community, when you've got people that are, like you said, looking out for each other, looking out for people that shouldn't be there. What have you seen as far as the impact on, on safety, you know, as far as the crime levels and those kind of things within your community? Well, for now, it's, I mean, we've had the occasional here and there, somebody will walk off with some lumber from a job site, um, which is just, when you build something, you've got exposed lumber and materials and you just folks are going to naturally try to come and get it. Um, but from a safety and security standpoint where we are, um, we're protected. Um, we, we don't have a crime issue here. Um, we are bordered by you know 600 feet of the French brawl that on one entire section of our property. So that's awfully secure. Um, newfound on the other and really only two ways in and out of our development. So from a topographical standpoint, we have been afforded a very tight knit community with few ways in and out. Um, we are not, we're not a gated community. The first thing we did when we bought the land and started talking to folks was explain to them, this is not a gated community. Um, our goal, our ultimate goal is economic stratification. It is being able to have starter homes all the way up to very expensive homes where people can start here and move into different homes as their family grows or as their lifestyles change. And maybe they want to be closer to the farm or closer to the river. Um, but we don't have a huge track record yet. So I can say that right now we're very safe and be surprised if a lot of people lock their doors, but we're not certainly not suggesting that or, or, or condoning or condemning it. But the more eyes you have on each other's backs and more folks, you know, the safer you're going to be. And, um, I knew my neighbors growing up and we're, we're, I think we're a more transient community than we used to be. Um, I grew up in the same house. I slept in the same bed um, and I had the same friends. And that's not quite the case anymore. People, to, you know, with technology, we're moving all over this planet. And the more that we can can find a sense of security and a sense of community in a village where we know who's there and why they're there and what they're doing. And we can look out for one another from a economic as well as just a general upkeep and maintenance and spiritual and knowing when somebody's having a bad day and offer them a smile. Um, if I can teach anybody anything, it's just smile. It makes, it makes a difference to people. Um, you never know what somebody else is going through. And if we can give them a reason to have hope and a reason to smile, um, the world's better. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to transition to some closing questions, but I, I just want to also thank you. The, you know, what you're doing is you're like so many places around the world, you're sh taking a risk and showing that it can be done. And like you said, we're going back to what we had 
all over the world a few hundred years ago already. So history has proven it, but it's sadly swimming upstream at the moment, being, you know, trying to eat clean food and be environmentally minded and understanding community. But I think it's fantastic that you're creating this because I think it's going to be a blueprint for many other, you know, cities and counties to adopt the same kind of principle in their area. And the more communities we have like that, where there's all these positive outlets and, and sense of community, I think the more healing we're going to see, the less crime, the less mental health problems. I agree 100%. Brilliant. All right. Well, then going to the closing questions, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. I mentioned previously that we put together a charrette of books. Um, Wallace J. Nichols uh, wrote a book called The Blue Mind. And it is the surprising science that shows how being near, in, or underwater can make you happier, healthier, more connected, and better at what you do. And that was our before anything was planted and before it was an agricultural community, but where we were and we were near water, around water and on water. Um, this is really what started Olivet. And Wallace Nichols, we met with him and he has been all over the world giving the tours and lectures and writing books and explaining to people the science behind water, the science behind trees um, why you get that feeling when you get closer to the ocean or closer to a river, whether you know it or not, um, whether, why your heart rate goes down, whether you, why you breathe deeper, um, the spiritual, the emotional, the psychological effects of being, and in this particular case, it was water, but it also translates and correlates into trees. And his idea was, you know, water bathing, whereas you've got forest bathing as well. And so I would say that, you know, Blue Mind by Wallace Nichols is um, one of the most important books where we started. And then uh, another one is called Rewild the Child and getting kids back in nature. Um, it's just never more important letting, whether that's uh, conflict resolution and letting them you know, there's nothing wrong with kids arguing. They need to learn to argue with one another so they're not sheltered um, when they get older and reintroducing our kids back into nature. And um, those have been really the two most important books for us. Beautiful. I think I think I've heard Rewild the Child mentioned once before, but definitely not the blue mind. And I, the the beach is absolutely my happy place. And it's not for sunbathing. I literally We'll get in the ocean and just, you know, spend hours in there. So I'm fascinated to read that myself. But I think there's so much truth. I mean, there's science behind it. But also, when we take a step back, we don't even, we shouldn't need science to prove that nature is healing for us. We just go out there and, and close our eyes and feel it. Listen, that's, we shouldn't need it. And the more we can just show people, if you, if you have, if you're a dog person or, and you've ever been with your dog when you drive, and you could be five hours from the beach, and the second you get within 15 or 20 minutes from it, the dog starts pacing. Now, obviously, they, they're smelling it and sensing it, but so are we. You, know, you, you don't know it, but your body starts reacting differently, and your y y science takes over, and 
I couldn't begin to tell you why. Um, but if we can just get people to trust that it's real and more importantly to go do it and give them opportunities and places and teach the kids and making things more simple and trying to eliminate some of the stresses that are coming to our, to our youth that we never had, um, whether that be social media and the instantaneousness of decisions and how permanent they are, um, breaking that so that they can, they can, it's okay to make mistakes um, and giving them opportunities in nature and where there are no cell phones and cameras and Twitters and Skype and giving them a chance to make a mistake that doesn't haunt them forever because that's what we did. Um, And learning to grow into the adult that they're going to be and realizing that we don't all start out that way and we've got to be shepherded along the way. And um, we need to create areas that are safe and secure and that education allows people to do to, to experience it. And whether that is the rooftop unit of a small farm in downtown Brooklyn could be just as safe a space as a 300 acre spot in Asheville or you name it. Um, there are solutions, whether they're big and small, and we don't all have to be too far to the left or too far to the right. Um, we just need to listen to one another. And it starts with places like Olivet or it starts with a rooftop garden in Brooklyn or something in D.C. or in Africa or it just starts with the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And you hit on a very good point, too. I never really thought of it that way, but that's a definitely a generational difference is we did get to screw up and no one recorded it. Whereas now, I mean, sadly, you know, the, the, the politicians and all these other people that we see on television all the time are the ones that we see, you know, held up for all the mistakes. But there is that lower level where, for example, if I was on a fire and I did something stupid and someone had their cell phone out, that might go viral and I be I might be mocked for that momentary mistake that I made. Whereas, you know, life five years ago and prior, you didn't get, uh, it wasn't made eternal, your mistakes and get to haunt you over and over again. It happened for a moment, you felt like an idiot and then you moved on. Yeah, and that's, that is unheard of these days. And I think that, Society has become so hypercritical of every decision that people make that they're not given the opportunity to screw up. And I wish that we would become more tolerant in that respect. And so often I just wish people would say, hey, that wasn't my finest moment or I made a mistake. I learned from it. I've moved on and that we can be okay with that. Um, now obviously there are certain things we catch that are just horrific, but I look back on all the dumb things I did as a kid that we all do as a kid. And if some of those were captured, I'd feel like a complete idiot, you know, and I just think we need the room to screw up. Um, but the tools to do things better. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, next question. Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, medical personnel and associated professions of the world? 
Wow. And it can be anyone. It doesn't have to be related to those fields at all. Well, I, I mentioned a guy named Yates Farr who who started Falling Creek Camp, who's, who runs and operates Falling Creek Camp. Um, they are It's an all-boys camp located in the mountains here that it, it, it's their mantra is, you know, growing good, good humans. And, you know, um, I think that he is a, a wonderful human being that is trying to educate our youth and put out positive energy into the world. Um, and I think Yates would be a wonderful person to have on. I think people would, would learn a lot from, from him and his family. Um, and happy to share that contact information. Um, and we've got, a, you know, as I think that's probably the best recommendation I can make. If you could get Wallace Nichols on there, I think you would love him. I think he sure would be a wonderful person to get on. And um, he's a wealth of knowledge. And I, I think people would, would really gain a lot of insight from the way his mind works and what he's trying to accomplish. Yeah, no, I agree. So thank you for both those suggestions. Um, okay. And then the last question before we make sure people know where to find Oliver and yourself, what do you do to decompress? It's really hiking. Um, my kids are of the age now where, uh, we're not really having to backpack any of them. My four, my, she's almost five now and she's got sturdy enough legs where we can really get out there and do some good stuff out in the woods. Um, but for me, it is, I'm a novice guitarist who loves to play the guitar, but I'm very fearful of playing in front of people, um, but I sure do enjoy it. Um, so just this weekend for for our vacation, we camped. We took the kids, we set the tent up, I brought the guitar, and we built a fire, and we sat around and just talked to each other for two days. And I came back more energized and more proud of being a father than I had been in a while, just spending that quality time with them with no, no electronics and nothing getting in the way of, of our conversation. And anybody that you can find that anywhere, just find a piece of solitude and enjoy your, enjoy your family that way. And, um, singing in the shower, um, makes me happy. I'm not very good at it, but I do it. <laughs> No one's judging you in the shower. Hopefully no cell phones either. <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> All right. So, then, so how do you, what, what's your, how do you unwind? Um, just, I mean, pretty much what you've been describing at Olivet. I mean, seriously, it's, I grew up on a farm. So, um, you know, I love um, the woods and that element of nature, but I'm absolutely a water baby as well. So something draws me. There's this one beach in uh, Florida, just south of St. Augustine called Crescent Beach. And there's, something about the energy there and i'll body surf like a five-year-old for hours <laughs> with my son um but yeah and then i play music my dog i mean there's there's so many elements but none of them involve like you were saying electronics or you know likes on any social media thing it's all basically reconnecting to things that humans have done for hundreds and hundreds of years yeah it's we are not inventing anything and if, if, if we could take our pride out of it and, and just say, guys, all we're doing is trying to go back to the way we lived before um, and mix what we know now versus what we knew then to make it as fulfilling and useful and practical and affordable and attainable as possible. It's a good way to get out of bed every morning. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then for people listening, I mean, I'm I'm fascinated. I'm actually going to be up in the Carolinas at some point. So I would love to come and you know visit when I'm up there and see it for myself. But for people that are intrigued, that want to learn more, where's the best place to find Olivet online? Sure. Well, our website is the easiest and we try to give people tools to really visit the property and tour it and walk it um, without even showing up and decided if it's something they'd like to be around. And that's uh, www.olivetnc.com. That's O-L-I-V-E-T-T-E-N-C.com. And you can find out who we are, what we're about, our backgrounds, our histories, what we're doing out here, our community events, social pages. Um, you can check us out on Facebook at Olivet. Um, you can go to olivetfarm.com and see what's going on at the farm or link directly through our webpage. Um, we're on Instagram, um, we're on Twitter, and we're on Facebook. And um, if you're ever in the area, um, we are a non-gated community with public roads. We'd love to have you drive around and take a look and see what we're up to and say hello while you're out of here, grab some vegetables and sing a little bit in the shower. <laughs> Brilliant. And if people want to reach out to you specifically, is that through the website as well? Yep. They can get me there or you can get me at Scott at all of that NC.com. All right. Well, Scott, I want to say thank you so much. I know we were, we were connected by, um, you know, another group and I'm so glad that they did connect us. But what, like I said, what you're doing is, I think, if adopted would make huge impacts on so many areas that are causing issues at the moment in life, whether it's health, whether it's, you know, mental health, whether it's environmental elements. So thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story today. Well, I really appreciate you having me on here and. I think the same goes back to you as well. The more that we can shine a light on first responders and the people that are out there doing the hard work every day and the people that are bringing good into this world, um, keep it up. It's much needed. And the more positive news we have out there, the better. 